Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is um, Julia Middleton, Director of Women Emerging and your podcast host. This is the last in the series, seven episodes on essence. What we find as women in our essence, right at the heart of us, that that is so fundamental to who we are and therefore to how we lead. We've looked at lots of different pieces of our essence, from Aparna talking about sacred, to Katrina talking about the body, to Anna Luz talking about nature, to Melissa talking about motherness, to Hinamoa talking about her ancestors, to Aisha talking about trauma and the effect that trauma has and the being around trauma um, has on how we lead. That was last week. So this week is Isata on education and how how our education plays out in how we eventually lead. Now, I think it's worth taking quite a broad definition of the word education and thinking about it both in terms of the education that you get from your family, from the culture that you're brought up in, and then education in terms of the more formal systems of education that you experience. And I think I'm going to leave the second one very much to Isata because it's a, she has some extraordinarily powerful messages. And, and she really does illustrate the degree to which how you are educated has an enormous impact on how you then lead. But it's interesting, actually, talking about education in the context of family and culture. It sort of almost goes back to the origins of women emerging, to those early days before we'd even dreamt up the idea of having an expedition of women going to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. In those early days, um, certainly right at the beginning, actually, I was hugely motivated by a TED talk that I saw by a woman called Deepa Narayan. It was completely fascinating and I totally recommend it to you. Where she talked about what she, she coined the, expre- the phrase, the seven habits that silence women. The things that, that get sort of baked into you at a very early age that, that deeply influence how you think and how you behave. And in her context, she was talking about the seven habits that are baked into you when you are brought up in India. And particularly, she used the word chup, a word I'd not heard of before, but that was fascinating. Um, it's it, Apparently, in India, if someone says chup to you as a young woman, it's basically be quiet or possibly shut up. 
but certainly um, <laughs> make no contribution, make no noise, do not have a voice, just silence yourself. Chup. And she talked a lot about it. And when I was watching this TEDx, which I recommend and you absolutely must look at, I became fascinated because what was the equivalent to chup in different languages in different parts of the world? So in those early days of women emerging, I sort of wandered around and talked to lots of different people from different parts of the world about what's the equivalent of chup that said to you, um, uh, okay, now I, I have to admit, no one ever said anything like chup to me. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm never conscious of having been told to shut up. And I suppose listening to the deeper TED Talk made me realise just how lucky I was that no one had ever said chup to me. But one of the first people I talked to was Saba. And I'll, I'll put links to all of these episodes. But I interviewed Saba in the early days of Women Emerging and said to her, what's the equivalent of chup and does it ring? And she just said, yeah, of course it rings. It rings a big bell. Because in the Arab world, I was just told to hus, hus. And, and, and she it was interesting every time she said the word hus she put her index finger on her lips and and closed her lips and put the index finger really to sort of to keep them closed you know that thing where you sort of almost curl the top of your index finger to absolutely not just keep it closed but to sort of almost pin your lips down i'm doing it at the moment so Saba talked about all the things that had been said to her as a young girl brought up in the Arab world. All those things that told her to be quiet, to not have a voice, to be modest and quiet and, and how much that had influenced all her life and all her life very much as a leader. And I, and I spent some time with Linda, that was fascinating. Linda, whose entire upbringing was a sort of uh, South American um, Hispanic world where the word, because she, she jumped when I said chup and when I told her to have a look at this episode that Deepa had done, uh, the she just, she couldn't resist it. And she said, yes, in my world, I was told to silenciar. Silencia. And when she said it, there was a sort of hiss, a sort of snake-like hiss in the silencia. That just, as a young girl, be quiet. And if you met Linda, it's, it's, it's a bit of a giggle a minute, the thought that anybody ever told Linda to be quiet. There was very little hope of achieving that. But very interesting. And then Falawe was so much fun. Falawe in Nigeria, again, almost instant response to the deeper TEDx talk. And 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 she said that in her part of Nigeria, what you see is Falaballe, Falaballe. Uh, it's exactly the same as Chup and as Hus and as Silencia. It's, um, it's, you know, Falaballe, be quiet. Be quiet, big time, be quiet. 
And it does make you think that if you... Sorry, we, we did many more films. And it seems that in almost all languages, there is some word that's used to silence young girls, but actually to persuade young girls to eventually silence themselves. And yeah, it was fascinating. When I spoke to all these women, how does that that play out in their leadership, having been brought up like that? That as leaders, they tend to ask permission an awful lot. As leaders, they tend to feel that they are not enough. They're not important enough, intelligent enough, tall enough, short enough, thin enough, clever enough. I don't know, everything was not enough. Not enough to have a voice. And and then they would talk about, you know, my education through my family, through through my culture of telling me to be quiet, um, made me put other people on pedestals. And the people who were noisy, I thought they were almost another breed. And the fact that they were noisy meant that they needed to be listened to, even if they were talking complete rubbish. Uh, other women talked about, if you've spent so much of your childhood being told to be quiet, you tend to forever um, hesitate in that key moment when you should really have said something. Or sometimes, I mean, it's happened to all of us, isn't it? That you hold back on a thought because you think maybe, you know, maybe I'm not clever enough to be at this meeting and you hold back or that's not a clever enough thought and you're sort of... um, you're playing with that idea and then you hear somebody else say it. <laughs> you sit there and think, why didn't I say it? But um, this concept that you hold back or indeed, you know, this concept that um, as leaders you're at meetings and you sometimes don't say something and then you phone your boss that evening and say, you know, there's a snag in the argument and it's this. And your boss says to you, Julia, why didn't you mention this at the meeting? And the answer is because I was taught not to mention things at a meeting. Well, not in my case, it has to be said. But in vast numbers of women are taught not to express their views. It's not even taught. They're educated. They're, it's, 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 it's in this this farabale, this chup, this hus, this silencia is is embedded in their nature. And and with that, I think a lot of people talked about the concept of being a good girl. You know, a good girl is a quiet girl. And an awful lot of the women I talked to about this were saying, you know, I, there was a moment that I stopped being a good girl. And that meant that I chose to have a voice and to stop silencing myself. And um, it is interesting, isn't it? The, I, I was talking to Mai Chen, who, um, who is sort of uh, a mixture of, of, of a Chinese culture and a New Zealand culture. And I remember her saying to me, you know, there was a moment in my life when I decided 
I will speak. Um, however much has been put into my DNA that I will be silent, I will speak. Because for me, there was no option. That That is the decision, I will speak. But even then, I mean, for example, me, I never, nobody ever said, be quiet to me. But I suppose, in a way, um, maybe they should have. Because, like everything, you don't want to hear farabali or hus or silencia or chup at every turn. But you do need to be told to be quiet a little bit in your childhood, which I probably wasn't. Like, possibly, a number of Western people. I remember... Uh, very early in my career, I was doing some work in um, South Asia where I was saying, you know, why is nobody else contributing here? And um, this wonderful woman who was chairing the meeting said, Julia, if you just shut up yourself for a minute, then others might say something. Uh, or my father's expression, if you could just switch the... Um, the wireless from transmit to receive occasionally, Julia. It would be helpful. So we need a little chup, but not a great deal. And it, and it makes me think of Anna Cook's thinking. You know, Anna Cook, who is that violinist, Polish violinist currently living in Paris, who talks so energetically about being in an orchestra and being visible and feeling visible and not just sort of melting. And surely part of being visible is feeling visible. And if you have an entire education devoted to chup, farabali, hus and silencia, maybe you keep quiet and also, it also makes you feel invisible and and as a leader, maybe that holds you back because you're quiet. Or it holds you back because you respond against it, like perhaps like May, and in some cases like me, where you become so noisy because you're sick of not being listened to that you then don't listen to anybody else. I think that is... That's really, really interesting. Anyhow... There was there was a richness in this conversation about what is embedded in us as women. What is embedded in us in our education from our families and our cultures. What is embedded in us that makes us feel um, invisible. And how that impacts on our leadership. But then... Then you move on to the formal education system. And I think I hand over to Isata at this stage. Even if we're just talking about education within the classroom and not the wider worldwide nurture that you gain from your home, from your environment, from your community, um, from the people you see around you, what you learn and how you learn it makes a difference in who you become. And I work with mostly women in a rural area 
who are lowly educated or sometimes not at all, never been in a classroom. And the limits, the limits that puts on somebody's life, um, we talked about confidence earlier on. When I moved to my community and I ran for elected office, if I had never been to school, I wouldn't dare do that. I wouldn't dare do that. I wouldn't see myself as worthy to represent a people because I would know that I don't know everything I should know. And once you've been in a classroom and you've learned something, you always, always realize there's more to learn. You realize you don't know everything, but it opens up your world in a way that you're able to learn what you already haven't. You're able to seek new knowledge. You're able to, to, to find out about things that you may not have experienced. You can go on the internet, you can read, you can you know, learn things on your own afterwards because you've already got that basic foundation. But if you've never been able to be in a classroom, um, you place limits on your life because you realize that you don't know as much as other people. And for women in particular in these rural settings, it doesn't just limit their economic activity, it limits their mothering, it limits their revenue, um, it limits what they measure within themselves that they're able to do. I said, tell me about your own education. I got my foundation in Sierra Leone as primary education, continued in England, um, up to university. And I did my adulting, quote unquote, in the US where I first got my you know, first serious job as an adult. And I believe having moved back full circle, going to Sierra Leone and living and working there now, I bring all of that with me, what I've learned in the classroom and what I've learned outside. And I know my life experiences, what I've been able to see, what I've been exposed to, definitely shows up in how I lead. The most important thing is to be able to recognize that other people's education might limit them in some ways, but to know that intelligence and education is not the same thing. So somebody may not have a formal education, but you realize they still have something to offer in terms of solutions, um, regardless of how long they've been in the classroom because you understand the impact of the learning you've had even outside of the classroom. The formal education in the classroom also has its, its, its range. So there's the opportunity to be in a classroom, but then it depends who you're in a classroom with. Um, so in Sierra Leone, we have a more instructive way of learning where you're supposed to repeat everything you've been told and then you become the best student. And the difference I see in my education in England, for example, you're a better student if you're able to challenge everything you've been told. And that kind of opportunity to innovate, that kind of opportunity to be able to find solutions for yourself um, enables me to be able to find solutions for other people. So the leadership, I think, um, in, in my sense or my form of leadership is very consultative in that manner. So when I show up, I also give people that I work with the opportunity to contribute to anything we're working on. So I think that's how 
you know, my education has impacted my leadership. In fact, that I'm able to listen better to everybody that I'm working with. So somebody who may need a little more time to build confidence in themselves because they've had a lifelong um, instructive educational system where they're supposed to just repeat what the leader says. They're supposed to just agree with what the boss says. They're supposed to agree with what their mother said. You know, we've all had this in the home, um, in, in African families, especially, you know, you don't disagree with adults and it, it, it spreads to the schools. You don't disagree with teachers, you know, so to be able to bring out in people who may have had that form of education to say you are allowed to disagree. In fact, we want you to disagree if you think differently, because we are not going to learn from you if you don't tell us your point of view. It, it, it takes a while for people who haven't been in an environment where that kind of permission has been granted where that kind of support system exists. And sometimes I think they're suspicious of that. So I remember when I was in Ministry of Social Welfare as minister, and my, the first couple of meetings, I think the civil servants at, at the ministry thought, you know, who is she and, and which sky did she fall out of? Um, we're not supposed to laugh in meetings. You're supposed to be very serious. You're supposed to be very uptight. And you're supposed to be in charge and tell people what to do. And my take was, I'm here, I'm new. Um, the civil servants who've been there for 10, 12 years, you have to know better than me. Of course you do. Even if it's just institutional memory, you have to have that more than me. So if I don't seek your advice, I'm not going to learn anything. And when you go to a meeting, in, in that way, in Sierra Leone, everybody's suspicious because I'm supposed to be the big, powerful, almighty minister who knows everything. And leadership in Sierra Leone, power in particular, is kind of bullish the way it's practiced. So um, a consultative leader is somebody you're suspicious of because it must be a trick. And after a couple of meetings, then they realize, okay, maybe, you know, this is genuine. Maybe this is her authentic self. And it makes people bloom because then they, they're free to come to you with ideas. Because in the end, one person cannot have the, all the solutions. One person does not have all the knowledge. And if you don't allow other people to, to contribute what they know and what they've learned, it's a disservice to the very challenges that you're trying to work on. So in a way, you're going, you're going against all the education that many of the people who work with you have had, and you're really pushing back. You, to do that, you have to have a lot of confidence, don't you? And, and maybe that's another element of education. It builds confidence when you're really sure about what you know. And you're sure about what you know, not in an arrogant way to say, this is the only way to do it, I am very sure about how I do things because I know that there are other ways of doing things. Say that again. You're very sure of how you do things because you know there are other ways of doing them. Yeah. Explain that. <laughs> this is how I think education works, how it evolves. You have to evolve as a person in that way to be receptive enough to know that there's always more to learn 
but being very sure about the learning you've already received enough to be able to apply it. You have to create the space for people to, to have their voices heard. And they have to know that they're in a safe space to make mistakes, to proffer solutions, to contribute to a conversation and not feel as if they're not valued. And, and what that does also question um, authority is you know that you're gonna be questioned. So once you've learned that you are allowed to question authority, you're then going to show up as a kind of leader who is going to accept somebody to question you. And what I've encountered mostly in Syria are leaders who don't want to be questioned because they have been taught not to question their leaders. Are there any blindnesses in that your education has sort of inculcated in you that you've had to dig out? Um, yes. Um, so, so the differences in culture, for example, if I have been raised in an environment where, you know, challenging leadership is allowed and you have to recognize that you're moving now and working in an environment where maybe that is not a common occurrence, um, recognizing that took me a while because initially you're assuming everybody's educated, is educated the same way. And first of all, you have to know that there are differences and recognizing those differences and making allowances for them, I think first was, was one of my blind spots. So for me, saying no to my boss was normal. And for my boss, it was like, where is she coming from? The, the blind spot leads to um, being stuck in, in one way, you know, just trying to do things one way. And when that, when that opens up for you, it also opens up in the way you show up. So realizing, okay, I will need different approaches based on who I'm encountering so that there's some kind of negotiation in how we progress. Some people may not be ready, you know, to have the rug pulled out from under them completely. And it may just have to be a slow and deliberate way of learning together, moving together until you hit common ground. Yeah, it leads to some friction though. It does lead to some friction. You know, apart from the English that I speak, I was trained as a, a scientist. I did a degree in biochemistry, but 80% of the work I do now has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's absolutely nothing to do with that. But the fact that I've learned how to learn makes me teachable, which I think that's what um, my kind of education has been able to do because it's based on research and innovation challenging as opposed to instructive reciting and repeating. So I've been able to learn how to learn in my own accord. And one of the mistakes we do make in my environment is to measure somebody's education or intelligence based on how good they speak English. You know, so I speak English very well in Sierra Leone, but I am one of those people who really make sure that we don't use a benchmark, um, English as a benchmark for intelligence. My grandmother never went to school, but she was the most intelligent person I ever met. And for me, 
um, that lesson, that, that life lesson is something I take everywhere I go, but it leads to being able to question your current situation, being able to, to change your current situation uh, as, as opposed to being accepting of it. You know, it's really interesting. It, it brings back a, an, uh, a podcast episode we did a few weeks ago with uh, an extraordinary um, conductor of an orchestra in Poland. And she was saying that one of her biggest challenges is, is, to, is to counter what she calls the feudal mentality, where people in the orchestra were playing their instrument with their hands, but not with their hearts or with their heads. Because it was almost an act of rebellion against the country, the institution that they were part of, that they wouldn't give them their heart and their head. But she was saying how hard it is as a leader to try and get beyond being given just the hands. So when you say that, it makes me think, you know, how do you make people or help people who have really had this, this um, non-challenging theme all the way through their education? How do you change what has effectively become their DNA? I mean, how do you do it, Isata? You have to listen with your heart. You, you first listen with your heart, and then they'll give you theirs. Is it as simple as that? Yes. Um, if somebody has been used to all their lives not being listened to, not being heard, their voice is not valued, it's not sought, somebody's telling you we don't need to hear what you have to say, you just have to do what we tell you, they move on autopilot. They're going to do what you tell them, not with their heart, because you've been, they've been told to do it. Now imagine now you start to listen. They start to speak. And you really can't speak and share without sharing your heart. You can't. Um, if I'm repeating and I'm reciting what you've told me to, I don't need to involve my heart. But if I'm asking and listening in a way that I want to hear you, you can only share you. And once you start to share yourself, your heart is involved. And I think at the heart of all the solutions we're trying to seek as leaders, we're trying to make sure that somebody's creativity is involved, somebody's innovation is involved, somebody's hands for sure, but somebody's heart must be a part of the process for us to really build comprehensive solutions to the challenges of the world. I'm conscious that in my own education, there are some good things, but there are also some things that I've had to sort of dust down and take out. My French education certainly made me quite a rebel. Um, you know, we were on the, I remember age 12, be, taking the whole class out. Actually that time was because the head teacher had said we could only have Christmas trees in the main entrance to the school and we couldn't have a Christmas tree in every single classroom. So we all went on strike and refused to be educated. <laughs> I, I, you know,
know, your your education does weave things into you. What are the things that your education weaved into you, I said, to, uh, which you've had to decide to weave out? Um, before, before I talk about what I've weaved out, um, I want to go back to a 12-year-old example as well. So imagine at 12 years old being able to change your school uniform. Like after that, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. So I imagine if I was a 12-year-old in Sierra Leone where you have to do as you're told and, and listen and don't speak and all of that. But as a 12-year-old in London, I was the class rep. And that year, you know, everybody from Form 1 where I was to Form to Sixth Form, um, all of those class reps got together, had a meeting, um, gave instructions to the school board. <laughs> And we were able to change our school uniform. And I can't weave that kind of power out of me because I realize the power of a single person, the power of a single voice. It's really hard not to believe that anything is possible after that. Let's ask that question of somebody who's highly educated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the kinds of things that you would love to, to sort of weave out of, in quotes, highly educated people? Arrogance, arrogance that you know everything. Um, the idea that one person can know everything. The, the very idea, um, I think, shows a lack of education. I, it, it makes for bad leadership if you can put it bluntly, it makes for bad leadership because everybody who's been a lifelong classroom knows that there's always more to learn and you can learn from people that you are intending to teach. But if you're sitting on a high horse from a position of I know more than you, it limits you, it does. Isata, the, the word weave is, is um is very powerful, isn't it? The the concept that education weaves things into you that you need to understand and and calibrate. Uh, weaving that arrogance of I know more than you, um, to quote you, makes for bad leadership. Couldn't agree more. But I also think that that concept of weaving in a power within you and I, I, I think you said you can't weave that power out of me. Once I had changed the school uniform, you could not weave that power out of me. Um, in my case, it wasn't a school uniform. Um, and it wasn't a British school or, or, or a Sierra Leonean school. It was a French school. And um, I remember... <laughs> leading a walkout over a very minor issue at school and being successful and I think that that same sense of um, nothing is impossible if you can change the structures of your school um, as a young person if you can be heard at school then surely you can be heard anywhere if you can be visible at school, surely you can be visible everywhere. And that, that surely 
set you up to be the kind of leaders that we all want to be. So thank you so much, Isata. Thank you so much to all the women from the expedition who have been part of these episodes, to Aparna, to Katrina, to Annalouche, to Melissa, to Hinamoa, to Aisha, and now to you, Isata. This series on essence has been a fascination for me. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk to Mona and try and pull some of the learnings together. And who better to do it than Mona, who is an extraordinary listener and will pick so much of the threads up for us. And then I think we're going to do a series of episodes on the kind of energy that emanates from you once you figure out what your essence is. So looking forward to the next episodes. Thank you very much for joining us and I send you much love. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.